This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Neil Woods, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving up your time today to come on and discuss your illustrious career. Now, what I want to ask before we get into the nitty gritty of that is, as an adult, you would go on to go undercover, a lot of involvement in the UK drug world. What I want to know is, if we take it back to, say, high school, junior school, however far back you want to go, what did you envision yourself becoming as a youngster? I um, I wasn't one of those people who had a clear idea about what I was going to do. Um, I suppose I, I, I've always been obsessed with music. I used to sing. Uh, in bands and things but I, I didn't really have any great ambitions in that regard either so no I mean I wasn't one of these kids who would run around with a plastic policeman's helmet arm or anything I, I didn't want to go into policing that was quite an accident so no I was I was pretty clueless and just um, going with the way the universe took me to be honest what was your highest achievement education wise after high school did you go into further education um did A-levels, didn't do that well, went, but went to university um, and dropped out of university after about three or four months. I remember sitting in a lecture theatre thinking, why on earth did I think I was going to be interested in business studies? Because it's the most boring thing on earth. And I remember sitting there thinking, what, what was I thinking? Um, so I dropped out of university. Instead of doing something sensible, like you know, finding a degree course that I, actually, that I, that I would enjoy, I just dropped out and I was going to go backpacking around Europe like some friends of mine had done Um, because that sounded exciting, you know, Mm. moving from place to place, doing part-time jobs. Um, But then I saw an advertisement for the police, so it was really a whim. And because I couldn't make my mind up, actually, you know, backpacking around Europe, applying for the police, I flipped a coin and it came up heads, so I applied for the police. So that's how your career path set on its journey, the toss of a coin. Yeah, literally flippant, yes. (laughs) <laughs> we're always going to pick heads because they do say tails never fails don't they well no i mean you know you've got to mix it up a bit if, you, if you're playing by luck you've got to mix it up i think let's play devil's advocate for a minute and say it lands on tails what do you envisage your life being if you had gone traveling oh god knows um probably would have got bored of picking fruit by the end of the first summer um decided to retrain in something I, w- I would have imagined but I don't think it would have taken me on a long convoluted journey which brings me to this conversation today somehow. <laughs> probably a, a very different journey for you so when did you join the police was it the early 90s 1989 I was right, a, okay. a young 19 year old actually but I didn't realize that until I actually got into the police <laughs> which force did you join Derbyshire okay so 1989, I read that you, you started your undercover work in the early 90s, or I think it was about 1993. So what did that what did that first four-year chunk look like? Did you have aspirations of where you wanted to go within the police force? No, no, I was terrible at it. I was a really bad uh, uniform police officer, and part of that was because I was, I think I was too young, uh, me personally. I've, I think I've been too sheltered and young, so I found it really hard to adapt to dealing with confrontation i found it really hard to adapt to the the sort of the teamwork and and, and the environment uh, so no i found it really difficult and for the first two years i was just clinging on to stay in and and i got i was hating most of it uh, the only reason i was forcing myself to keep going to the, the end of the first two years just to prove to myself i could survive it to be honest Mm. Um, but then I got to the end of the two years, which meant you're out of your probation and you confirmed. And I got a bit better and I stuck with it. And, you know, I was still keeping my eye on what else I would do. But I, I managed to start developing a bit after four years in. And then I got the chance to uh, have an attachment to the drug squad, which is weird for a young cop. That's not what they normally did. Um, and then when when I was with the drug squad, they said, one of them looked at me 
strangely, Paul would look to me strangely one day and said, do you fancy having to go buy some crack cocaine? <laughs> Not a question I was expecting, um, but I thought, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at anything. That's quite a jump, isn't it? From someone who, you know, walking the beat, whatever you're doing in your probationary period, upholding the law, to then all of a sudden get a full 180 and think, actually, we want you to commit a crime, essentially. What was going through your head when you were asked that? Well, I mean, I wasn't committing a crime because police have the legal, they, they, they are the, they, they have a, a legal loophole to carry, uh, to be in possession of drugs. So, that's actually written into the Misuse of Drugs Act that it is legal for police to hold drugs. So I wasn't doing anything illegal by, by buying the drugs. But, um, I mean, it was a it was a strange thing um, to suddenly be thrown into that covert world. However, I quickly realised that covert policing, in particular undercover policing, suited my personality much more. So I, I didn't, I, I thrived very quickly doing that. You know, and that that apart from the first day, of course, the first day was a rude awakening because I went to knock on this guy's door, and he answered, he answered the door and said, "Who are you? You're not a student, are you? I hate students." And I thought, actually, I don't know who I am because I hadn't thought about that. I'd just been told to go <laughs> buy of this guy in, in this in this house, so you know, I, I hadn't really thought about a cover story. So I said, "That'll do." Yeah, I'm a student. <laughs> and he said, Stupid, I've just told you I hate students. But, you know, he joked, and it was actually quite an easy experience. And as I was walking away with my little stone of crack cocaine, he says, you take care now, don't get yourself arrested, which I thought was quite considerate, really. It's nice. You don't yeah. often hear that from a drug dealer, I imagine. Well, that's the point, you see. The first time I went, he had no idea that there was likely to be a police officer on his doorstep, because that tactic, that uh, that what became known as level two uh, undercover work didn't happen. You know, we had the more sophisticated end of undercover work, but starting at the bottom was a tactic that wasn't really used in the UK. So he didn't know. So actually it was a, a calm and more of a calm and relaxed market because there weren't the presence of undercover cops in that market. My presence in that market very rapidly made the market more violent, and more threatening. So, but the first time it was quite easy. Good job because I did such a terrible job of building a cover story. Um, so, but that defined the rest of my life really because I, the, the drug squad were really happy with the idea that they could get lots of results very quickly and cheaply. Um, and so I was in no time at all doing several weeks operation and then it quickly turned into no less than six or seven months at a time because it became much more difficult because obviously organised crime were suddenly aware that there were police officers out there wanting to get them. So it became, well, more difficult with every passing year, really. Um, but I thrived at that. You know, I didn't thrive in uniform policing to start with. I found it very difficult. But this this work, I, I really took to. It suited, it suited my personality. Why was that? It sounds kind of like if you would have gone into that situation with I've got to get my backstory straight. If he asked this, I'm going to say this. If you were tense going into it rather than, it sounds like a pretty laid back approach. Whereas being in the police on the front line, there's a lot of pressure for that. I'm just curious as to why you think the undercover work suited your personality better. There's a few reasons, really. Um, I'm I'm quite geeky. So once once I get obsessed with developing something then I get properly obsessed about it so I became very quickly obsessed with improving uh, but also I enjoyed the intellectual exercise of lying now if that sounds slightly um, sociopathic then well, maybe it is but I, I I I just really enjoyed maintaining that lie manipulating people uh, and it was an intellectual challenge you know it, it, with with lots of things to test you along the way and I also found that when I was in a situation where I had a sudden surge of adrenaline, where there was a threat to me and I had more threats to more times I thought I was going to die than I can count. Uh, but in those situations, I, I I didn't panic and I found that I had the the sense that time was slowing down and that I had all the time in the world to think, to think clearly and think my way through a problem. 
So it was immediate problem solving, um, having having to think on my own rather than as part of a team, which again suited me, I think, as an introvert and um, being introvert is another part of my, my character. Um, yeah, there, there was a collection of reasons, I think, really, but um, and I, I enjoyed it as well, and that helps, you know, if you if you want to develop at something, enjoying it helps you become better at it. I know that's a very simple, basic thing to say, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out. And I was loving it, you know. I've been struggling in the place and and really being quite crap at the job for a few years to suddenly find myself um, actually being able to develop something and become good at it. It, it gives you such drive, you know, and it suited my ego as well. I was a young man and suddenly I've got these seasoned detectives congratulating me on being, you know, saying I'm, I'm fearless and I'm able to put up with these threats. You know, it's a big, big ego boost as a young man. So that drove me on as well, you know, it's developing a different reputation. Did any part of you feel guilt for you mentioned the word manipulation which is obviously a strong word and i get what you're saying about you know tongue-in-cheek sociopathic tendencies but did any part of you feel guilty if you were to say befriend someone who would then go on to be arrested for example well that's a massive question for me personally because that is the thread um of my life which has led to the decline of my mental health um and what has informed my activism as I am now, because I'm, I'm now an activist campaigning to end the war on drugs. Uh, so, so it's a it's a big question. So, forgive me if it takes me a moment to to answer fully. When when I went into that work, I was just full of stigma, and I didn't understand problematic drug use at all. So, anyone who was using heroin or crack cocaine problematically, I just looked down on them as someone who'd made a stupid mistake in trying them, and someone who was unable to summon. Uh, sufficient willpower to get themselves out of it. So I just saw them as lesser. You know, I did. I looked at them as other people who were lesser than me. But, of course, in studying how to improve that, that work, the way to do that is to learn from the people around you. So I, I spent huge amounts of time and energy learning about the people which I was mingling with. And so I learned that they, every single one of them, these these vulnerable people that I was manipulating, uh, and I was manipulating them to get them to introduce me to organised crime figures. These vulnerable people, they, every single one of them had a story, and that story was all always childhood trauma, always. Whether it's um, a, a, a woman in, in Northampton called Uma who, who described, who said, oh, I can stop taking heroin, and I do sometimes to bring my tolerance down. But once I've been off heroin for a week or so, I start to become suicidal because I remember my uncle, the feeling of my uncle's fingernails when he used to sexually abuse me as a child. So for her, it was a pragmatic decision to be on heroin because it dulled that emotional pain. And that's a very common thing. So once I'd realised and I'd listened and really felt the empathy for these people, and nowadays I call it weaponizing empathy because that's what I was doing. I was I was getting to know these people and understand them in order to better manipulate them. Um, but once I understood these people who are complex people and some really lovely people as well, some really because you do get a mixture like anywhere in life. Um, I, I did start to feel guilty, and I had to really wrestle with the ethics of what I was doing because I was clearly causing harm to these people. Um, I mean, one of them in Nottingham, I, he, he was arrested. He was looking at three and a half years in prison. But I put the effort into befriending him. And he ended up being suicidal when he was in custody because he saw me as his one friend in the world. That finally, he'd met somebody he could talk to. And his particular childhood trauma was abuse, physical abuse from his father. But my betrayal of him literally tipped him over the edge and made him suicidal. So... I was constantly wrestling with the ethics of what I was doing because I was becoming acutely aware of the harm that I was causing to vulnerable people. So I kept going through this cycle, this thinking cycle, okay, this is causing harm, this is causing harm this was to these vulnerable people. But I justified it to myself time and time again in the fact that at the end of the operation, after the six or seven months, I'd be catching the, the gangsters. 
and there were some genuinely vicious people. So really, I was taking the decision that the end justified the means in my actions. But I kept revisiting it, going over and over. And after the suicidal man, um, I did give up undercover work for a while, but then I was myself manipulated back into it to do another operation. But part of my CPTSD, that's that's complex uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, part of my diagnosis is something called moral injury because my CPT, CPTSD really is very complex. Uh, a moral injury was first identified in soldiers returning from the Vietnam War who, again, had a, the ethical problem that they found that they were the enemy. They thought they came to that conclusion. So I have, I have similar um, psychiatric considerations, put it that way. How have you gone about trying to manage those difficulties that you've had with your mental health? Well, I mean, I've been through, I've, I've, I've seen three different psychiatrists, psych, loads of psychiatric nurses, therapists. I've been on all of the um, supposedly appropriate medication for PTSD and I, I, none of the medication suits me, although sertraline did for, helped me for about 11 months or so. Um, and so I'm not, not on any medication now and I, I manage it really. It's, it's, it's a case of learning to adapt to a new neurological situation. It's like, um, in order to appear normal and be normal, it's a matter of understanding risk, managing risk and, um, adapting. Sometimes I have a crash and, but you know, more, more days are good than bad nowadays. So, you know, I'm not too bad. Uh, but it's been quite a journey because in 2009 to 2011, al- alcohol was my, was my main solution, to be honest, which is very common with PTSD. It's a very well-documented relationship between that particular drug and, and PTSD because it calms down hypervigilance. It does. make makes you feel more relaxed. So um, the trouble is if you do it too much, it becomes very counterproductive very quickly. If you don't mind me asking, I don't want to get into it too much because i appreciate it's it's something that is a daily struggle for yourself based on what i've heard there but have you noticed any particular triggers that you are now aware of to look out for or can it sometimes just blindsight you well that's the strange thing it's never as simple as you as you might expect you know it's much to the frustration of therapists who, who want to force you to uh relive um whatever traumatic events are are causing the problem. And the trouble is, when it's complex, they're multi-layered. You know, I went into undercover work when I was already traumatised and I was compounding uh, the damage. So it's really layered and you can't unpick that so easily. It's the same for most PTSD cases within policing. Normal therapy is really difficult for police. Um, And so... The triggers I have are really weird and unpredictable, and I find new ones sometimes. You know, it's the gift that never stops giving. And I had a really peculiar one when I was in when I moved to Hereford in about two thousand and in two thousand and thirteen because I took a car through the car wash and I ended up going through this car wash, and I'm like having a massive hypervigilance attack. I'm sweating, forehead sweat dripping off my eyebrows, and really struggling, like in total panic in this car wash. I had no idea why. It took a bit of unpicking to remember that I had an instance when I was buying, when I was when I was phoning up the Burger Bar boys who had been infiltrated for a few months and getting them to arrange a score. And they had a really thick Birmingham accent, and he said, and, he, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. And the fact that I couldn't understand what he was saying was really annoying. And then eventually he shouted, "The Ark! The Ark!" Fucking car wash the art. You better be there when we're there or, or you're a dead man. I'm thinking, oh, I know what it means now. The car wash. So I went to the car wash the arc and I'm listening to the cars go through and the whirring and the sponges going around and the squirting. And the... So I'm stood there waiting and I'm waiting over 20 minutes for this guy to arrive. And my fight or flight syndrome's kicking in. I know how dangerous this guy is. The guy who spoke to me is implicated in seven different murders. He was the person who provided the machine guns for the murder of Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris a year before. He's a complete nutter. And so my flight or fight syndrome is saying, don't be so stupid. Don't stand there like a Muppet. Run away. 
But my undercover head is thinking, no, I've got to stay here. I've got a job to do. So that whole situation was like 20 minutes of really intense mental battle, which has clearly scarred me. Because because that's that was what was causing the prompting the hypervigilance response in the car wash. I could it, but I, I had to unpick that, and I don't I didn't remember it clearly. So it's just one idea of multi-layered things because that wasn't one of the instances during that operation where my life was felt really at risk. Because I mean, you know, they'd assaulted me, they'd stripped me. Strip me, show me a gun to make me to strip earlier on in that operation. I can remember those. I remembered those. I hadn't blotted those out. The things I've blotted out is all the secondary things, like the time at the car wash, where I suppose I'd just become acutely aware of the risk. So every slight risk felt extreme. And, uh, you know, I still expect to uh, travel into some city somewhere and suddenly have a new a new trigger. You know, as I say, it's the gift that doesn't stop <laughs> stop giving. Can you recall the time when you felt that your life was most at risk? Not necessarily someone's, you know, got you on the floor and threatening you with a weapon, but where you thought maybe there was a tension in the air, you didn't quite like. You could sort of smell it sometimes when you think the atmosphere's turning. Was there a time like that where you thought, I'm actually potentially in deep shit here? Oh, God, there's loads of times. Um... I mean, there's, there's subtle times where you know that you something tangible shifts, but it's really, really subtle. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Is I did this infiltration in this pub, and the target of the operation was quite a sort of proper gangster. He was involved in huge amounts of antique burglaries, mass, massive organised car thefts, but also dealing cocaine and in this pub where I've been meeting him, I've, I've made a really stupid mistake for this operation. Really stupid. Um, I've made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines. And I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, but it, but it gave me something to talk about. You know, like the difference between sulfate and hydrochloride as a buzz or, you know, uh, benzodrines or, you know, methamphetamine paste and all this kind of bollocks I was talking. Anyway, he um one day this guy said to him, came to me and he says, Hey you, we've got a present for you. And he bought picked up this little bag with this sort of rather toxic looking pink goo in it. And the smell of it was like the urine from a glue sniffing cat. If you if you've ever smelt ridiculously strong amphetamine, you know you'll know what I mean by that. It was proper paste. And um he was obviously expecting me to try it, and I, I'm, I must have had a momentary reticence just flash across my face like, oh, fuck. And he saw that, and I saw a momentary suspicion flash across his face, momentary. But I knew from that momentary slight change in the atmosphere, I knew that I had to pour water on that fire of suspicion very quickly. And the only way I could do that was show some enthusiasm and have a good dollop of amphetamine paste so I stuck my finger in and swallowed some and then he looked at me and said you'll need more than that with your tolerance I thought great so I dug in and you know one was feeling the mouth ulcers forming in my tongue as I as I went in sort of gathering warm feeling in my stomach as it hit um and I mean it probably wasn't the time when I was most at risk and I was most likely to die lots of other times but in terms of a, a tangible having to change my behavior otherwise if if, it, if I'd allowed it to go further down the the suspicion route if I'd allowed that to develop that to blossom I would have been in serious trouble because you know I'd, I'd only I think only about an hour before I'd seen him order the beating of somebody and his and, and literally his thugs dragged somebody out and, and beat the crap out of them. So, and he was really unpredictable and very violent. So I, it, there was definite distinct risks with, with that. If I hadn't suddenly decided to be enthusiastic and take the drugs, the speed, I mean, that was, it was horrendous because it was obviously way more than my zero tolerance could handle. Uh, and I felt horrendous. I mean, I knew enough medically about the drug that I wasn't, you, you need to take a lot of speed to 
overdose a lot. So I knew I wasn't in, in any danger, but it was horrible. And I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't sleep properly for three nights, uh, which was terrible. But my house has never been so tidy as that it was during those three days. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. So that kind of leads me naturally onto a two part question. The first part being, what are the legal and ethical, I suppose, ramifications of taking drugs whilst undercover? And also, how often were you in a situation where you found that you actually had to take some? Well, it's legal because I'm allowed to possess it as a as a police officer. Um, and actually, consumption isn't illegal anyway; only possession in this mm-hmm. country. We're not we're not we're not like Sweden where you can blood test a citizen and prosecute them for what's in their blood. Yeah, actually, that's they do do that. Wow. Um, so, so the legal the legal issues is no problem at all. And, and from my point of view, as a procedural issue it's just that i just have to be up front and say this is what's happened and document it you know it's, it wasn't a big deal really uh, i didn't have to do it very often i'm pleased to say because it's it's very stressful to feel the idea that you're going to lose some control over your faculties in a dangerous situation so it's not a comfortable thing to do at all and the few times where i've felt at, at risk and had to consume cannabis that's been horrible Apart from one time, which was a weird, a weird time, I'll tell you this one, because um, it was one of the early times when my ethics were confused me and made me lose focus. I was sent in to this free party. Now, I don't know if you know the free party scene. Uh, the free party scene was basically the movement that came out of the rave scene between in the UK between 88 and 90, the end of 1993. And after that time, you still had free parties, but the, the uh, Criminal Justice Bill in 1994 meant that a lot of these parties were illegal and they were actively being shut down. But the free party scene's a really vibrant sort of hippie thing, and it still is in some places. So I was sent into this free party, and the way it was sold to me, and I went in with a colleague as well, uh, Kate, the way it was sold to us is, is that there was some big hitter, big gangster type, going to turn up and... Uh, and pass drugs onto the dealers there. And um, we went into this free party and we went straight in and the guy, this guy came up to us and said, hey, do you need a pill? And we says, yeah, yeah. And he gave us this pill to each. I says, how much, mate? He says, oh, no, no. You just look like you need them, man. Right, okay. So we got to know these people and they were just lovely people who were just there for a party. And it turned out this big hitter from Nottingham wasn't the big hitter. He was just another person who was part of that free party scene. There was no, none of the organised crime violence or unpleasant characters here. These are just people who are really into good quality techno. Now, being a dance music fan myself, um, I was loving this scene, but it was Kate, my companion, who said, there is no way I'm gathering evidence against these people. Just no way. I'm not doing it. And I'm thinking right on. I love it. Yeah, I don't want to either. So I said, all right, what are we going to do then? She says, well, we'll just be vague. We're not going to pro- gather proper evidence. Um, and I says, well, what should we do in the meantime? And she said, well, let's get stoned. And I thought, what? <laughs> and she says, yeah, let's get stoned. Fuck this. I'm not gathering evidence. Let's just party. I thought, all right, then. I'm game for that. So um, we scored some green and some hash and she made a very sophisticated combination of the two and we got stoned and uh, danced to some amazing british underground techno it was an incredible party but i remember coming out of the out of it thinking oh god this is the end of my undercover career because we've just got in there and we're obviously completely off our box and we've got some drugs but no idea who sold them to us we can't describe them or we're going to be describing some imaginary person I remember sitting in the debrief thinking they, they've got to they've got to be able to tell surely they can tell they're drug squad and um but they didn't they didn't say a word at all so it, it didn't end my undercover career but yeah so I suppose that was one of the earlier times when my ethics were being challenged and my thinking was being challenged but my companion Kate was obviously way ahead of me in the conclusions The story will continue after these quick messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Do you think that shows the level of disconnect between officers in general? I don't want to say in general, but the, the disconnect between officers who have a negative preconception of drug users and drug takers versus you rocking, you've been on the sesh all night, and to them, they've not got a scooby-doo that there's anything different about your personality, which I guess is the reality of 90 95% of social drug users. Is that a disconnect that you've come to learn since doing that role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the vast majority of people have a complete misunderstanding about people who use drugs or, or what various drugs do or the risks of them or what happens. You know, there's very good evidence, very good scientific evidence, particularly a paper presented by Professor David Nutt and others in The Lancet in 2010, which is called the Comparative uh comparators index and it shows by quite a sophisticated way of working it out what are the most dangerous drugs and which are the safest and the top of the 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 list for the most dangerous is easily alcohol by a long way at the bottom near the much nearer the bottom is cannabis and below cannabis is psilocybin and lsd and other psychedelics like tryptamines so there's a clear difference in people's perception of what's most harmful and what isn't. But it's also worth noting that 90% of drug use is, is non-problematic. People don't have a problematic relationship with the drugs that they consume to take. Heroin is the outlier with that. For heroin, it's 75% of consumption is non-problematic. So one in four people who use heroin use it problematically. But of course, you say that to people and they think, well, no, all heroin, all heroin use is problematic isn't it you take it once you're addicted aren't you there's no it's not true it's just simply not true um most people have no problem with the drug drugs that they take and the 10 percent of people who do have a problem with drugs it's a sliding scale you know if you've got childhood trauma you're going to be at the extreme end of the scale and you need much more intervention to somebody who is um consuming drugs problematically to deal with maybe more of an adult trauma and they need less intervention so it's a sliding scale how much how problematic it is. And this is a big misunderstanding. When, you know, if we're talking about criminalizing people, let's t- if you criminalize people to, who take drugs occasionally and recreationally, say for example, MDMA, right? MDMA, the average MDMA consumer uses it three and a half times a year. Three and a half times a year. Problematic use of MDMA is virtually unheard of. People don't take it too much they don't abuse it well if you they take it at a festival setting or they take it once every couple of months at a dance event something like that so the idea of criminalizing for people doing that is is completely absurd it's completely absurd to criminalize anybody for what they do with their own mind and body if that's not causing any harm to anyone else it's like why would you want to criminalize that person it's just it's just ludicrous and then likewise, it's also ludicrous to criminalise somebody who is using a drug problematically and self-medicating for trauma because all you're doing by criminalising them is adding to their trauma. And if it goes so far that they go to prison, well, you have the big risk of embedding that trauma and meaning they're never going to be healed because there's few things you can do to an adult more traumatic than send them to prison. So criminalizing that cohort of people is also absurd but for different reasons of course it took me a long time to learn that um through my prejudices as as a a young man and going through the police prejudices that were also driven and reinforced by by the need to catch these people you know that by being so involved in the sort of ferocious investigation to catch people so it took me a long time to unpick this, but once you once you realise it, it's not that complicated, really. Um, that we we just shouldn't be doing this. Um, now, obviously, I'm a campaigner. I'm an activist 
to actually legally regulate all of the drug markets, because my main drive is to take the power away from organised crime. I'm, I'm still fighting organised crime now. I'm out of the police. I'm just, I'm just doing it in a way that could actually be effective. But aside from that need to take control of to to retake control of the drug markets, you've also got this peripheral damage which is going on to people who are criminalised, and, and so it's two different issues to campaign on, really. But it's we certainly certainly should not be causing harm to people just because they take a particular drug that we don't. One of the most common things I hear is that if all drugs were legal, regulated, taxable, much like alcohol, tobacco, the level of drug problematic use would drastically reduce. It would eliminate the need for shady street dealers, cutting it with stuff that's not, you know, reducing the quality, stretching the profits, all that kind of stuff. What's your thoughts on that? If everything was legal, would that be a change that would be... So noteworthy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is good evidence, actually, um, that where you take legal control of that of, a, of any particular drug, then problematic consumption of that drug goes down. But we have to be clear that not all drugs are the same. So when we do legally regulate drugs, we will do it according to the relative risks. And those regulations will be very, very different depending on the risks of those drugs. But the easiest drug to regulate is actually heroin by a long way and it's also the most urgent drug for us to regulate because it's the most associated with crime it drives petty crime it also kills more people than than any other drug uh and it also allows the exploitation of very problematic users uh and also the heroin market the problematic heroin market is the principal driver behind county lines child exploitation so if you can take legal control of that market the child exploitation stops the deaths will will stop because you get a regulated uh, product in regulated settings, but also you get the associated petty crime that comes with problematic drug use also drops. So all of these measures and the benefits of taking legal control of heroin are astonishing. And in fact, with the evidence base, it's the single most powerful policy you could do within the criminal justice system is to take legal control of the heroin market. And in the UK, We don't even need to change the law. We go back to the British system. The British system, which is still legal, means that if you develop a a problem with heroin, you go to the doctor and you get help. You're not criminalised. There's no moral judgment. You're given help. And what that means with the British system is you're given a clean supply of heroin, of diamorphine. Now, so that ended, our British system ended at the end of the 1960s under pressure from the United States. At the time that the British system ended, there was 1,046 heroin consumers in the UK. In less than 15 years, it went to 300,000. A very clear cause and effect because the market was given to organised crime and suddenly it became a big business incentive to find new customers. In 1994, the Swiss government took up the British system and started prescribing heroin to those that needed it. They used British evidence to do that. As a result of that, through the 1990s, they had a 50% drop in burglaries. They had dramatic drops in crime at a time when Europe was mostly struggling with crime. They don't have a heroin problem anymore. They don't have an opioid crisis. They don't have a drug death crisis like we do in the UK because they took control of that market. There are no children dealing heroin in Switzerland, and nor will there ever be because there is a legal control of that market. Now, it's, it's entirely medicalised. It's only through medical uh, mechanisms that you will get that heroin. But that just means that it's very, very strict regulation. Very strict. You, the way that you regulate cannabis is dramatically different. You don't need a medical, strict medical system for cannabis. You just need licensed uh, retail outlets for adult consumption, which means that children can't buy it. <laughs> Mm. To protect children, that's what you need. Uh, you need labelling so you know exactly how strong each product is so people have a choice. At the moment, few people have a choice in what cannabis they consume and own, because only the strongest possible uh, variety is available for most people. So 
control will make the cannabis market safer as well and reduce many of the harms that we have. And the same goes for most of the other drugs. But obviously for heroin, we need strict control. But that's the easy one to do. And that's the one that's urgent. How close are we to adopting, say, the American model where some of their states now legalize the sale of marijuana, whether it's medicinal purposes, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but some of the states it's legal to sell in specialized stores. How far away from that are we here in the UK? We could do it overnight. You know, we would solve a lot of economic problems. We would, um, and what, by what, what I mean by that is not the value in the tax market from the market. It means that we could redirect resources from policing uh, into into other policing issues. You know, we can save money in the criminal justice system. We can deal with the backlog in the court system. There's so many benefits to, to legal control of cannabis. And I, I think, I honestly think we are um, less than 10 years away in the UK because the evidence from the German legal control of cannabis will be coming soon. They've announced their initial measures for that just recently. Malta is, is also legal. But I would not want to do it like most American states. We have to learn from their mistakes. They've done some disastrous things. They've allowed big business to come in. They've not, not all of the states have looked at it through a public health lens. Um, we do need control of the products. We need control. We need to look at it through public health. But also it must be done with social equity in this country. So we can't just let some big business come in and take over, you know, shift from an organised crime monopoly to a big business monopoly. We have to invest in the communities that have been most affected by drug policy so far. So um, black communities, which have been massively disproportionately policed with drugs, they need to have the opportunities um, in, in a new legal market. And New York State is a very good example of where they're doing that. They're actually providing grants for startup grants. They're not allowing big business in at all for the first 12 months. So that's the kind of model I would want to see in the UK. We have to do this to the benefit of society. I mean, any legal market is going to be better than organised crime and control, any. But we we have an opportunity to, to make a very good regulated market by learning from other people's mistakes. And that learning from Canada's mistake, the big mistake they made is pricing the legal product at twice the price of the illicit product. So they've only managed to get rid of 60% of the, of the illicit market so far. I mean, that's still a win because that's 60% less money going into the pockets of organised crime. You know, you've got to celebrate that. But that's not good enough to me for the UK. We need to do better than that. Um, we need to shut down as many illegal cannabis groves as possible. We need to take, you know, stop channeling police resources into that. And the only way we could do that is to get the regulation right. And that includes the price. Okay. There's a quote on the homepage of your website, neilwoods.net. says, the first casualty of any war is the truth, and a war on drugs is no exception. That kind of brings me nicely on to your activism. And if we could talk now about the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, you're a board member, and this is basically to do with advocating ev an evidence-based drug policy and related criminal justice reforms. Can you tell me a little bit about LEAP? Yeah, so LEAP was formed in 2002 in the United States by five police officers who, who modelled the organisation on the Veterans Against the War campaign, which helped bring an end to the Vietnam War, which was basically soldiers telling the truth about, about the Vietnam War. And so that's what they modelled it on. And they were, we were originally called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. But, but you, it's, it's politics 101 not to be against something. You have to be for something. So we changed our name to Action Partnership. Um, so, yeah, I'm on the board for the organisation in the United States, but I'm also chair of the organisation here in Europe. And we are a, we're a worldwide movement, and we are growing rapidly at the moment, actually. We're a worldwide movement of police and other law enforcement figures, both serving and retired, who campaign for an evidence-based drug policy. And what that means to us is full legal control, taking legal control away from organised crime. And the reason that us police are so keen on this is because we're seeing the, the damage that organised crime is, is causing. 
And the threat from organised crime is a genuine crisis. There's an organisation called the Global Initiative to Transnational Organised Crime. And in September uh, 2001, they published a report which declared the growing power of organised crime, the single biggest threat to our security and our democratic way of life, the single biggest threat, what they declared. And that's because, and that's drugs, you know, the money, the power that organised crime has completely completely from the illicit drug markets. It's half a trillion uh, dollars a year market, even at a conservative estimate, which makes it a bigger business than textiles. We all wear textiles, right? To give you an idea of the huge power. That gives them incredible corrupting power. Part of the truth uh, that is not acknowledged and there are lies around is around the scale of corruption that this financial power causes. And the problem is that police institutions all around the world do not admit the extent of corruption caused by that because police institutions have a duty to maintain public confidence. So a chief constable in the UK or a chief of police in the USA, wherever it is, they are tasked with maintaining public confidence. It's actually one of their most important roles. So they're not going to be sharing their internal intelligence about the extent of corruption in the criminal justice system and the police, because that would erode public confidence in the police. But the trouble is, that threat is real and it's growing. And if you'll forgive me to just give an explanation why, it's not just the value in the market which causes that corruption. It's also the mechanisms of policing. You see, police are really good at catching drug dealers, really good at it. But that's part of the problem. Where police catch a gang or a kingpin character, the gang or kingpin character that is most able to take up the opportunity created by that activity is somebody who who controls another share of the market. So they expand their market. So what policing does is it's been creating monopolies or cooperatives. Uh, The wire, the way it's described in the wire, that drama, Mm -hmm. very accurate, very, very accurate indeed. And monopolies and cooperatives mean that there is more disposable income to invest in corruption. And organised crime will always invest their disposable income in corruption because it makes them more efficient. It makes them more um, shielded from investigation from the criminal justice system. You know, there are literally gangsters getting away with murder um, all the time around the world. I mean, I could name one uh, in the UK who's who's gone through three murder trials. All acquitted. So that corruption makes the police job more difficult, and but the public aren't aware of it. It becomes quite difficult as well to start talking about the scale of corruption caused by the illicit drug markets. can be can be challenging because many audiences will just dismiss it as a conspiracy theory. It will be, but it's not conspiracy theory. Our organisation is connected to police all over the world. We're in constant communication about the genuine impacts of our drug laws. And our, our organisation is very well informed and very sensible. And we can tell you that this threat of corruption is real, it's huge, and it's a genuine crisis. And it will keep getting worse until we take legal control of the drug markets. An example is, you know, the, the cartels, there are three cartels in Mexico. They have a greater GDP than most West African countries. Many West African countries are now narco states, like completely run by organised crime. Uh, Senegal, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau are examples of narco states. The last military coup in Guinea was actually the military becoming the biggest drug gang, drug gang because the, 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 the biggest financial asset is the money coming in through the cocaine trade across the Atlantic into West Africa. But now the Guinea military control that because they control the government. The ramifications from the for the planet from that corruption is huge because Guinea has currently the fastest deforestation in the world. Guinea has signed up to the deforestation pledges in COP26 and COP27. But organised crime control their forests. Legitimate government don't. So to tackle the climate crisis, we need good governance. But good governance is being eroded 
many governments, like the Brazilian government, they're not in control of their backyard. Lula has got has come to power in Brazil with the promise of stopping the deforestation. Since he's come to power, deforestation in Brazil has increased because he does not have local governments of his forest. Organised crime do. So we cannot tackle the climate crisis without tackling drug prohibition. So sorry to be the voice of doom, but it's even more urgent than you thought. Uh, and that's if anyone listening to this actually realised how much of a crisis we were in anyway. It's frightening to hear. What's the effect that, because ultimately these people that make the drugs, so let's say I've seen the, the documentary on Netflix called Dope, and it shows you the criminal side, it shows you the police officer side, all the way from collecting the, the raw plants, adding all the stuff to it until it eventually gets to America in that scenario. There's clearly a demand for it. Otherwise, the first cog in the chain, basically, it's pointless because there's no demand. Why are we in a situation now where even Joe Public, so 90% of the people you mentioned don't have a problematic drug problem? They might use it recreationally, might be MDMA three times a year, like you've mentioned, a rave. Why is that demand at the level it's at? And is that demand from the general user increasing or decreasing based on what you've seen? Demand is um, pretty much stable for almost all of the commodities at the moment. It fluctuates, you know, and for, for reasons that are unconnected with law enforcement. There's good evidence that enforcement and the threat of punitive measures actually has no impact on drug consumption at all. So where drug consumption fluctuates, it's, it's other factors. So it's levels. So, for example, in COVID, drug, drug consumption changed completely. Uh, stimulants and party drugs went down dramatically because no one was going to a party. Depressants went up massively. So there was an increase in consumption of benzodiazepines, alcohol, um, and, and in some cases, opioids. So depending on the needs of people, they, they changed their drug consumption habits. So um, so the, the demand is relatively stable. But there are certain commodities which are much more um, much more valuable. And I've mentioned already heroin. The reason that heroin is much more valuable is because the 10% 10 of heroin consumers consume 50% of the market value of that drug. So a very tiny cohort of people in any community are very, very lucrative to be, to, 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 uh, to, to have as customers, which is what's driving county lines, the child exploitation and, that they are catering for that very lucrative market of the most problematic consumers. So, like I said before, if you take care of that, those consumers, like it, like they do in in Switzerland and the Netherlands, the the market, the the wealth that's driving that that market, really, the heat's taken out of it completely. But co I mean, but cocaine is very popular, and it's becoming more popular all the time. It's the second most consumed drug in the UK after. Cannabis, it's the same for many, many countries. And it's, it's popular, you know, there's lots of people, what they like to have, a few bumps on a Friday night when they go out. And the vast majority of people, that's how they consume their, their cocaine. But because the large numbers of people and increasing numbers of people are like it, it becomes a very lucrative market. But there's been some fascinating things happening with the cocaine market in the last few years. The supply routes have been shortened, mostly because of the, the um, sort of, loosely call it a takeover by West Balkan gangs. There's been a response from by a, a cooperative being formed between the Italian mafia and English, uh, sorry, British organised crime groups. So the market's just become much more efficient, much, uh, and the production, the actual supply of cocaine has gone up 35% in the last 12 months, according to uh, reliable, the, the, the sources, law enforcement sources. 35%. That's an incredible increase. What, but that's not because of an increase in demand. That's just an increase in supply, which meant that it's a, cocaine has increasingly got purer. So now it's quite normal to buy a one gram bag of cocaine with no adulteration in it at all. Five years ago, you'd be looking at like having 12 different adulterants in your cocaine. Now, quite often, there's none in it, like none. And they've even shifted the manner of production. So... Instead of the finished product coming into Europe, the, the cocaine paste, like the stage just before the refining, is coming in as paste, and then the refining is being done in Europe. 
So the adulteration isn't going in there. You're getting pure cocaine. The price has dropped. It's the same in North America as well. It's quite routine to get 100% pure cocaine all the way up and down the west coast of, of America. So extraordinary things really are happening in that market. And, and I think oh, production is also started in countries that never used to grow it, like Honduras as well. Amazing shifts, which so it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, because it can be made so cheaply and the profits are so big, it doesn't matter how much you seize, it's made no difference to the price, purity, or availability. So I think I might have rambled there. I do apologize because I forgot the origin of that question. But but the point is that people like drugs and there will always be that demand. And also, drug consumption is normal human behavior. It's always been normal human behavior so we can either try and control it as best we can through regulation and health concerns or we can leave it in the hands of organized crime and all the disaster that's that's caused there's a real crisis in america now with fentanyl the synthesized heroin or crack one of the two synthesized anyway and the opioid crisis as well how close are we to that here well, that's the constant worry for people of us working in this in this realm. We're constantly, constantly worried about fentanyl in Europe and particularly the UK if it hits the same way as the UK. Fentanyl is an opioid. It's, it's the opioid crisis. It is an opioid. And fentanyl is a classic example of what, what we call the iron law of prohibition, that if you make a drug illegal, then it will become stronger and more dangerous. And fentanyl is that more strong and dangerous version of heroin. So, in other words, fentanyl exists because heroin is illegal. That's because fentanyl is is 100 times stronger per weight. It's easier to smuggle. It's less complicated to smuggle. It's less less cost in smuggling it. So, but now it's, you can't get heroin in the the US because the fentanyl completely dominates it. All of the suppliers, that's what they've gone for. It's it's a more efficient business model. The reason we haven't had that in in parts of Europe and in particular the UK is because we've got such a well-established, well-functioning heroin market, really well-established, with established figures who don't want that interfered with. Heroin comes into the UK, it gets adulterated at the point of import with paracetamol and caffeine that's the normal route that's the normal thing that happens with heroin so you get that adulterated it fluctuates in strength but that's the adulterant and it's really well established the last test showed that we only had the presence of fentanyl in three percent of our heroin seizures still worrying but not that bad the worry is that if the taliban do successfully manage to reduce the supply of heroin like they did in 2001 they successfully did reduce the supply um then that's going to be a disaster for the uk because organized crime will just switch to fentanyl like that not difficult to get you can just send it through the post there's no stopping fentanyl well there's no stopping any drug but through brutal measures and basically open well well warfare and total autocratic control of their borders they have successfully reduced that supply previously. So we could be one step away from a catastrophe and that catastrophe will hit quick, it will hit hard, and we are not prepared for it in the UK because harm reduction has been stripped back for years. We need a massive ramping up of harm reduction quickly to protect ourselves against the impending disaster, which may be around the corner, maybe. Weird as it sounds, I'm actually rooting for the Myanmar military and the Myanmar rebels because uh, opium poppies are production is being ramped up in Myanmar and if they can take up the slack um, of what's happening or what, what could just be about to happen in Afghanistan then maybe that will protect us from from the fentanyl disaster that's going to come. What percentage of the world's heroin supply is in control by the Taliban? 90 percent. 90 wow. 90%, yeah. It's shifted slightly. Arguably, it's gone down to 85% with what's happening elsewhere in Myanmar and some of the places. But the usually accepted figure is 90% of, of the world's heroin comes out of, of Afghanistan. Just Afghanistan as well? Just Afghanistan, yeah. Wow. That's frightening. What role do the media play in all this? Because the media have this negative perception, which is why 
again, I, I keep saying Joe Public, general person on the street, probably has a negative view of it. It's not something they've ever been involved in or taken. All they can see is what's reported, and that's generally negative. How responsible should they be compared to what they are? They are so incredibly irresponsible. I mean, you know, you, you have these moral panics that they jump on and sensationalise, like about nitrous oxide. Further criminalising nitrous oxide is a ludicrous thing to do. It's just going to cause harm, um, like like the banning of any of any drugs. So yeah, that they, we should hold them to task. You know, media should be presenting things in with evidence and balance. Um, I think positive stories about alternative drug consumption would be useful as well. You know, the, the cultural benefits of of MDMA linked to electronic music or something like that. But we we need a shift in media dialogue but i have to say more culpable in misinformation than the media is the organization that most feeds the media and that's the police now police don't intend to misinform in the uk certainly not in the uk they do in some other countries in order to defend uh, drug prohibition police are not doing that on purpose but every show every image that they show and feed into the media or social media it is is misinforming the public. So when police have a big seizure, big drug seizure, they present it and they'll even use some phrases like, we have managed to disrupt organised crime and keep these drugs off the street. And it's, it's out of context, it's ridiculous, because they're not keeping any drugs off the street. No one has gone without their drugs of choice today because of this drug seizure. It doesn't matter how big it is. And the police know that, but they're not telling the public that, they're not telling the media that. So that means that that's dishonest. There is a decision to be dishonest in the way that's presented. And the police have a duty to the truth, I believe. So the point is that that misinformation is misleading the public. If the truth was told, then the public would change their opinions quicker and we would have reform quicker. So the police do have a responsibility in this. Now, I accept that the police are just trying to maintain public confidence by showing that what they're doing is is successful but success has to be contextualized because if the police arrest a burglar burglaries will go down that basically basically that activity has a a benefit in reducing crime if you arrest a drug dealer crime goes up because if you create a gap in that market the market is fought over more often than not violence increases through successful arrests of drug dealers more often than not Violence can well, violence can increase from uh, large drug seizures, and of course, as explained earlier, corruption is perpetually being is constantly being increased by the refining of organised crime through policing drugs. Drugs policing sharpens the sword of organised crime. It makes it more efficient, more ruthless, more violent. Because police never reduce the size of the market. Never, that's an important point. Police Policing the drug markets never reduces the size of that market, ever. So what are we doing with policing drugs? We're changing the shape of that market. We're changing the shape. And that should be explained to the public. That should be explained to the media. But to return to your question, the media should be enthusiastically seeking out the truth rather than just sensationally adding to a moral panic. Because unless the information is improved, how can the public be informed as to the truth? It's certainly fascinating. And I, I do wish that there was more truth in this. And this is what kind of drew me to your activism and your website. You've got a couple of books as well. You've got Good Cop, Bad Cop, and then Drug Wars. Any plans to publish any more books on your story or on activism regarding drugs? Uh, good cop, bad war is the first is the first book. But um, do what did I say? Good cop, bad cop. Yeah, it's lots, <laughs> lots of people. Do that. Sorry, lots of, good, lots cop, of bad, good cop, bad war is what I should yeah. have said. <laughs> um, I mean, I am in. I'm talking with my co-writer, the brilliant JS Raffaelli, at the moment about, about what what we are going to do next. The trouble is, I get so busy with other activism. It's doing books is really time consuming. But JS might be up for it. So. Uh, but at the moment, you know, I'm just I'm just doing I'm doing conferences. I'm I'm writing in smaller 
smaller articles for a, particularly for a, an online magazine, American magazine called New Thinking. So some of the stuff on the climate, um, psychedelics, and other things like that, I've, I've written for that. Um, and but yeah, I'm just I'm just constantly busy, you know, traveling from conference to events, and but we'll see. Hope hopefully we'll get another book out. We do have many ideas, but it's just books are hard work. <laughs> you know, they really are. I find I find them so anyway, and I don't even do the, the hard work, and that because that's down to JS, the brilliant wordsmith. But you know, it takes a lot of thinking and conversation and research to 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 do certainly factual book like drug wars yeah i mean like i said at the start i appreciate you coming on it's very eye-opening very i probably use the word fascinating 10 times but it just is stuff to do with drugs really does tick up my fancy for whatever reason but i appreciate your time and your candor good luck with everything you've got in the pipeline and hopefully we'll hear from you again very soon thanks Steve. thanks for inviting me on it's been it's been good chatting with you thank you